Let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, the Apostles' Creed is just kind of a helpful, I don't know, teaching tool. Um, I think it was maybe compiled in like the 5th or the 4th century. I'm not a historian, so um, somewhere there. It wasn't like really early church, a little bit later. But it, in one point in church history, they condensed basically the essential beliefs of the Christian church, the, of the New Testament faith, right? And in that creed, we get the things that we universally believe as the Church of Jesus Christ throughout history and around the globe. Um, but in the Christian culture that I grew up in, some parts of the life of Jesus was emphasized more than others. I actually want to pray before I keep going. Um, so if you'll take a moment to close your eyes or bow your head with me, I'm just going to invite um, God to come and be in this time with us. I think he already has been. Father, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to gather with your people in this place and across the city. I'm thankful for the unity of our hearts together to worship you, um, to turn our eyes towards heaven, to where you are ascended and seated. And that somehow, as we do that, we are shaped um, in our imaginations, but also in, in the ways in which we live out this faith that we have inherited. And so I give you praise this day, and I, I ask that you would be honored in this time, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing to you. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So like I was saying, I, I grew up in a Christian culture, a church culture, that taught me how to think about my Christian faith um, in just, it had a very narrow scope, I learned. <laughs> and as I grew in my faith, that became bigger. But maybe, I, sh I share this this morning, because maybe some of you might identify with my experience growing up in the church. I felt like when I was growing up, I learned how to talk about the death of Jesus really well. And, and that Jesus dying on the cross was language that was really accessible to me, like from a really early age, right? And, and this is important, I think. <laughs> John 3.16 is like one of those scripture texts that um, 
we learn when we're really young. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, right? And so this idea that Jesus died for me, that's something I learned really early on. And I, it's part of that creed, that he died, was crucified, died, and then buried, right? And I developed a language for it. We had celebrations for it. I mean, the whole Lenten season, the whole Holy Week thing. And then, of course, I felt like this is how it worked for me. There was Jesus dying on the cross and then resurrection. And then, of course, you know, the Christmas story. I learned that really well. But those are like the three major things in my Christian faith that I learned how to talk about well. And this morning, you're going to hear me when I'm, as I'm preaching, I stumble because I'm, I'm even now having a hard time talking about ascension. So last Thursday was ascension day, and in the church, because we don't really have a way of celebrating that, like at least in the church culture that I'm a part of, which since we're here together, I think we're in that same culture together, we don't really know how to celebrate it. Like, in the Church Universal, there is a feast. And um, I, I looked up, how do you celebrate Ascension? And one of, the, one of the ways that I found on the internet, so I don't trust it, but, but it is what it is, and it's kind of funny, is that one of the ways that people have celebrated Ascension was they had a devil doll, that they would chase through the streets, capture, and then dunk in a pond and or burn in effigy to demonstrate the authority and power of Christ over the prince of the earth. And I thought, well... <laughs> Pastor Sean would say that bring it back. I find that as I am growing in my faith that I am, I'm, I am deeply interested in the whole story. I am deeply invested in shifting church culture from a truncated and incomplete gospel, which actually is no gospel, right? I realized in myself, in my experience, I have no practice in talking about the ascended and reigning Lord. Um, not well, at least. And this is what happened for me. It's like Jesus dying on the cross is so important. I'm not trying to say that they're of equal importance, right? Like, I don't even know how you would measure any of these things out. But when my theology was only ever about Jesus dying because of my sin, you know what that produced within me? Which also already fed, fed into the culture of my family and the culture of my um, heritage and then also the culture of my nation um, was shame and guilt. Because, I, because that's, that's how you feel when somebody dies for you. 
like I did something wrong that somebody had to like fix. But if the story of Jesus only ever stays there, then I have no liberation, right? So what is it for me to cultivate an imagination and to live into an embodied story of an ascended Lord, a reigning Lord? That's kind of what I'm interested in. And then not only that, but like, you know that you and I are, we are the creators of culture, like right now. Like we are the ones who inherited a Christian culture, but at some point somebody decided that how we would celebrate Christmas or how we would celebrate Lent or how we would celebrate Ash Wednesday or how we would celebrate Holy Week or how we would celebrate Easter would be this way, right? How do we mark the story in our lives um, so that we can more fully embody that reality? right? So we are the creators of culture, and we are creators of a Christian culture that we will pass on, that we will tell our younger ones. At some point, the Theas and the Tanners of this world are going to leave the church. Maybe not this church, <laughs> but we, ex and, and their peers, I'm, they're just, you know, PKs, so I pick on them, but that generation will one day lead the church and they will have inherited from us something that we inherited, but also other things as well. Okay, so can we, the scripture text we're looking at that's ascension is from Acts chapter one. If you have a Bible, I'm gonna invite you to open it. Um, and we're gonna look right there at Acts chapter one and we're gonna read from verse one through 11. We are the creators of culture. Ascension is a part of our story. How do we live and embody this reality of an ascended and reigning Lord? And I think scripture can help us with that, right? Like we have to know the story. Um, so let's read this together. In my former book, this is Luke writing to Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, the chosen. <laughs> after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God. So, I mean, let me just keep that in front of me. Jesus, over this Easter season, you've heard Jesus' stories of his appearing, right? Um, And these stories are important because he's the resurrected Lord. Jesus was crucified, died, and buried, and then he was resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to his apostles over a period of 40 days. Um, It's important, the details, that, you know, he's physically alive. He's eating. He's nourishing his body. And I think there's a sense in this, like, time of 40 days where he's coming to his disciples, he's appearing to them, he's saying, here, touch my hands, touch my feet, you know, touch my side. He's cooking them breakfast. They're all those really great stories, right? Um, And I think, I don't know, maybe in the imagination of the disciples, they're wondering, maybe this is the new normal. We've not heard that before, right? Like, Maybe this, like we, we've just come through this really traumatic experience of Jesus dying on the cross and then being resurrected, returned to us. Maybe now this is kind of how it's going to be. He's just going to hang out with us like this eternally, right? It, they're kind of getting used to it. It's been a period of 40 days. And so they ask him this question, is now the time, Right? Why do they ask that question? Because I think they're still working off of the old framework, right? They're still working out of a framework where in which Israel will be able to kick out all the occupants or those who have occupied their land, right? They're, they're waiting for their king to come still, right? Even post-resurrection, I think this. I think it's really hard to shift our imaginations. Because while everything has changed because of the resurrection, everything is still actually the same. You get that, right? Jesus has now defeated death But the Romans are still here, right? The empire's marks are still everywhere to be seen. It's hard for us to embody a new reality when the old forms and structures are still at work. I I just think that it's true then, it's true now. It's hard to embody a new reality when the old structures that we have been raised with, the cultures within, within which we've inherited, are still at play among us. And I think this is why ascension is vital. Vital, I don't know, maybe important, right? And so they ask, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus gives him the answer that he always tends to give them. It's not for you to know the times or the date the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. They don't really understand the fullness of what that means yet. Come back next Sunday, and I'm sure... Pastor Sean will preach a really good sermon about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe. You never know. But tune in. (laughs) 
But you will receive power from the Holy, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Here's the problem with his disciples. Their scope is still only this big, right? Their scope is still only ever Israel. Their scope is only ever the place that's right in front of them, which is actually really important. It's important, but their scope is not large enough. Because the kingdom of God and the story of God was always about all people. When you read the text, the next verse, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Some scholars say that this cloud that envelops Jesus is a, an echo of the imagery that we get out of Daniel 7. So I want to kind of just go there really quick because it's not to, if you want to come with me to the Old Testament, and I want to say that the, the writers and the audience of the New Testament, this is a reminder, I know you guys already know this, but the writers and the audience of the New Testament, their scripture was the Old Testament, right? And, and New Testament writers are, they, they make allusions. They're playing upon the imagination and the formation of the people that are receiving this word. And sometimes I feel like, you know, 2,000 some odd years later, um, except for those who have done well to be, you know, trained in biblical scholarship, um, we forget, right? We forget that we, we've not always been formed in the same ways. Like our imaginations aren't always as um, steeped in the imagery of the Old Testament. So these weren't things that like I knew I had to like research them and find them. But it's like when I read these texts alongside of what's happening in the New Testament, um, it, it makes sense. So if you come with me to Daniel 7, and this is talking about these different empires, and there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery that's really actually hard for me to fully understand, right? Um, but in here, Daniel chapter 7 I'm going to go to verse 13. It's a vision that Daniel has. And he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, right? And a lot of times we think of that as something, as Jesus, as the Son of Man, returning, right, as coming back, because Scripture tells us that this, Jesus, this same Jesus, how did the angel say it? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go, Scholars will argue it, it can be both. That in the same way that Jesus was hidden by this cloud, at the end of time we will see him return. This cloud imagery is supposed to help us understand Jesus' position and now authority and the scope of that authority for, for the whole world. Does that make sense? 
Are you tracking with me? If not, that's okay. I'm barely tracking with myself. Jesus was given authority. Like, if we're going to say from the Daniel text, authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations, people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And I do think that, you know, I did inherit a Christian faith that did talk about the encompassing, all-encompassing authority and power of Jesus, but I don't know that I always live out of that. Right? And so, I, you know, I, I have to lean heavily on scholars here, and I want to read a quote from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, and he says this about ascension and this idea of Jesus being enthroned. He says, Kyrios Iesus, those are Greek words, Jesus is Lord, was the earliest confession of Christian faith right? The thing you had to say before you got baptized. Oh, this is all over the place. Confessing that Jesus was Lord, meaning, among other things, that Caesar wasn't, right? Empire is still there. Um, But that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar wasn't. That was basic, bottom-line Christianity right from the start. Ascension Day Christianity, if you like. It wasn't something you had to wait for until the end of time. Being a Christian was always about living by faith in Jesus' sovereign lordship in a world which didn't much look like he was in charge. Okay. In the small Christian culture that I grew up in that overemphasized the death of Jesus, that made me feel guilty about my sins, um, but didn't ever get to the part that talked about the ascended Lord. Um, and I apologize if like any of my former pastors are listening to this, um, Grant, because uh, I don't mean that against you. Of course you taught about the ascension. But my imagination wasn't ripe with this, is what I'm trying to communicate, what I'm trying to say. And I don't know that it, it's true for most of the Christians that I connect with, that we understand that our identity is more shaped by his being in authority and risen over all things, right? Then I think sometimes we got so emotional about what happened at the cross that we don't know how to celebrate and live into the reality that he is alive and he is reigning and that his reign has implications for how we are living out our life now. One more scholar I want to go to, because, you know, I'm learning too, is a scholar that I really appreciate, Willie James Jennings. And in his commentary in Acts, he says this thing about the ascension. As Jesus announces his divine desire, his divine desire that the disciples will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, So, as Jesus announces this divine desire, he ascends. The ascension of Jesus continues to play so small a role in ecclesial imagination precisely because we struggle to think spatially. He goes on to say it like this. 
we more easily imagine the time of Jesus Christ, the time which he wishes to announce his reign, and the time between his ascension and his return, right? Like that's the time we're living in, the time between when he went to be seated at the right hand of God and when we expect him to come back. We more easily imagine this time than we do the space of Jesus Christ, the spaces he wishes to inhabit and to enter into. I find that challenging to me. If the ascended Lord embraces our time as his time to be made known, then he also seeks to walk in the places of this world to announce his life as the life given for the world. Right? How do we more fully shift from a temporal to a spatial Christian worldview? No, that's actually a question. Because I have an audience, right? Like I'm not just looking at a camera anymore. Is that fun to be preaching back to, um, to people? I know, because I think even pre-COVID and pre, you know, Facebook live streams. Actually, I feel like on Facebook, people respond better than, than they did before we were doing this. Can I get an amen? Okay, there we go. <laughs> I do appreciate the engagement. Let me, let me ask that question again, because maybe you can help me. How do we more fully shift from a temporal to a spatial Christian worldview? Oh, that's so good. I don't think the people online can hear that, and I don't know that I can repeat it. Um, prayer, yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? I think these are good. That, I think you and Pastor Terry had um, similar. I mean, he was very, very theological. -y joining with our great high priest who intercedes and then but that's prayer <laughs> i think no please yeah Amen, Pastor Sean. Amen. Yes, presence, and presence not just in this space, which is a beautiful space, and also I really appreciate. I don't think, um, like what ministers to my heart in the fact that we're slowly gathering back together again is the, I really love singing with other people. And I like hearing like the church sing, not just, you know, the people who get to be up here or whatever. Um, there's something that's really good about this space and our buildings and their gifts, right? But like, I do think that part of shifting from this like, 
temporal worldview into a spatial one is recognizing that the authority of Jesus is with us everywhere we go. Can we be present and alive to his authority? his lordship, which is, this is really hard language in our world, right? To talk about kingdom and reigning and authority because they tend to be, we tend to convolute that with like bad power, right? Okay. Oh, yes. So Jesus, we, if, our, if we can lean into a Christian imagination of him being enthroned and in power, and then that comes with us wherever we go, well, that's just really part of this whole thing because the idea is that Jesus is going up to heaven and we are being sent out to the whole world, right? Scholars will say that this ascension narrative of Jesus um, echoes another Old Testament story of a prophet and his protege in 2 kings 2 9 and 10 we hear about the passing on of a mantle from elijah to elisha and if you know this story elijah is taken up into the sky on a chariot and then well one of the things he says to elijah is like hey what can i get you while i go and elijah's like can i get like a double portion of your, like power and authority and all that stuff and and i know i'm totally like transcribing this it's not you go read the story two kings two nine through ten um but elijah says hey if you see me going in the clouds then that it'll be that's this is a hard thing but it'll be granted to you and so in a similar way we have this prophet jesus who then why was it important for these disciples to see him rise? To, I mean, he had been popping in and out, kind of, throughout the past 40 days, right? Um, but we, had to have a, we have to have a language to talk about him still physically being alive, but not with us any longer. He is creating an absence. There is going to be a gap. But also, like the songs that we sing this morning through our worship service he's always there with us he never leaves us he never lets go i mean those aren't the words we sing but they're they're threaded in the in the songs right the angels it's kind of comical the angels say to the disciples men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky, right? In the same way that the angel said to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? Like, this is not the thing to be doing, is what they're saying, right? But here's the thing. I have a lot of compassion for the disciples because they were not expecting this, right? They were not expecting this. How much faith did Jesus have to have in his disciples, right? I think one of the things that could have been an option is for Jesus to have stayed and centralized his power somewhere. Like, he, he's eternally alive. So, you know, and then from there, I feel like this is me and my small-minded thinking, is that, like, if Jesus had just stayed and centralized his power, then through the last 2,000 some odd years of history, he could have just been like to all the other rulers who were like 
creating wars and oppressing people, like, stop it, <laughs> right? Like, I know that there's like, there's this part of me that would want something like that because it seems easier. But again, I think it's a thing of scope. That Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, that we, that his faith in who we would become, even before the power of the Holy Spirit, right? This trust that we would take on and live and embody the life he taught us to live was possible. It's like a leader who steps aside so that his student can rise, right? I also think that, that there's this difficulty in here, and I'm not gonna talk about this really well, but I think he also had faith that somehow they would continue to be one after he is gone. He is like, in my, the way that I see Jesus, he was like the glue that held those disciples together. Like if you read the Gospels, and or what's kind of fun when you watch The Chosen, you realize that these disciples are very different kinds of people who probably wouldn't have connected with each other if Jesus wasn't there. And somehow Jesus has this faith that they will continue to cling and cleave and unite together even when he's not physically present. It gives me so much to think about. And, and in that, Jesus is doing this thing. Um, when we read the Ascension text, we are holding it with all the stories of the New Testament and the Gospel. So in, actually, today is the seventh Sunday of Easter, and the Gospel text would have been John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in that, he is praying to the Father that they would continue to be one right? As well as, what does he say there? I'm sorry, I want to go there really quick, and then I'm going to wrap up soon, I promise. Seventeen, seventeen. So he prays for their oneness, but then actually, all the way to the bottom, this is his thing, Jesus commissions them, right? As you have sent me into the world, he's praying to the Father, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself. And then if we go back to Matthew 28, you guys know this, right? That he authorizes his disciples, right? It's that great commission. That all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus had great faith in the disciples that they would indeed go back to Jerusalem, receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and that that somehow would then reach Judea and Samaria. And then we read the rest of the New Testament. We find that it goes further out and further out and further out. That somehow you and I get to sit here today looking at these same stories. 
and leaning into this same faith. So how should we celebrate ascension? What do we, as the church of the 21st century, do to mark the ascension of the risen Lord? How do we, how do we find a way to celebrate this anew? Or to make it, you know, I don't want the commentaries to always say, oh, the ecclesial imagination of the church today is still small around the ascension, right? But our children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren will have rituals that help them to celebrate and embrace the truth of the ascended Lord. Any ideas? I had a couple, and don't think they're stupid, okay? Or if you do think they are, don't tell me. Tell, don't tell Sean either, because that will hurt my feelings. Um, we don't. No, that's so right. Thank you. We don't say that. Don't think it is lame. Mm, see, that's hard. Okay. So here, here, here are some of my thoughts. Like, what if on Ascension Thursday, <laughs> Holy Thursday, because it usually falls on a Thursday, 40 days after Easter, we, the church, gathered in small groups of people. And you ever see those, like, lanterns that you can put, like, a fire under and then it, like, floats? Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to do that. So, like, I know that it's not, like, environmentally friendly. I wonder if we can find, like, compostable. I don't know. There's got to be a way, right? But, like, what if part of our ascension ritual was to light that and then, like, launch it into the sky so that we're looking up, but we're seeing the light of Christ rise, right? Doesn't that cultivate imagination for the ascension? Or what if we, in small groups of people or big groups, whatever, like, all throughout the city had a kite, like a white kite or something, and we flew the kite, and it was like this symbol. You know, like, here's the thing. We have to do it together. Because that's the point. It's the gathered body that identifies the risen and reigning Lord. But can you see it? Like, do you imagine, like, these kites, or maybe not white, like, I don't know, they could be colorful. <laughs> like, make it beautiful. I mean, not that, I, yeah. Anyways, you know what I mean? Like, um, what if groups of people did a hike together on Holy Thursday. And together, when you like got to the top of the mountain, you talked about the ways in which God was, I don't know, calling you to a new obedience, right? Like, I feel like in all of our lives, we are always growing, so there's something that God is calling us to. Okay, these are just some of my thoughts. And I... I don't know, will you think about that and pray about that? Can we find a way to create a new culture that embraces the ascended and risen and reigning Lord? And may we find ways as we do this, not just liturgically, but then to embody that in our neighborhoods. Amen? Let me pray for us as we gather for communion. Father, I'm so grateful for your word that challenges us, that opens us up, that... I don't know, stirs an imagination that you, you have, um, you're calling us 
into a newness every single day. And even when we feel like, oh man, maybe this is the new normal, we, we're, we've not fully grasped all that we could be and become. And so for the sake of our city and our neighborhoods and for the sake of the world, will you come and be Lord over our whole lives? May we know that, may we proclaim it, and may we live it more fully. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.